Sam Mulberry back with the third installment of our retro autobiography podcast summer series. Um, this week we have Amy Poppinga. So this interview goes back to March 5th, 2014. So I recorded this the same week that I recorded episode two with, uh, with Professor Chris Moore. Um, I've been listening back to, to a number of these and, uh, it's, you know, whenever you listen to things that are, that are old, um, you pick up on some of the quality issues. Um, so I, uh, I apologize for that weird buzzing that's happening in the background of these. This eventually gets better. It's just going to take a few more episodes. Um, I was learning what I was doing, trying to figure out equipment and, um, it took me a while to figure out how to make that, uh, how to make that go away. Um, so unfortunately these interviews have that in there, but the content is really great. Um, this is a, a really great discussion that I had with, with Amy and Amy, somebody who's, who I've known for a very long time. If you're a listener to this feed, you're pretty familiar with, uh, with Amy in lots and lots of different ways. Um, uh, but I learned things about her that I had, uh, I had no, no idea about. So this was a really fun interview. Amy's a really fun person to talk to. So, so I hope you enjoy this interview with Amy and continue to have a great summer. And we'll be back next week with more retro autobiography podcasts. Hey, welcome to Autobiography. Um, my guest this week is Amy Poppinga. She, along with me, was part of the Bethel class of 1999. So um, as we talk about in the uh, in the podcast, we shared a lot of classes together, although didn't really know each other very well in college, although we have sort of rewritten that history to make it seem like we did, although uh, we really didn't. Um, she's somebody who I, I enjoy a great deal. I think she's a, a really good teacher, a really great teacher. Um, uh, she teaches on the CWC team along with myself and Chris Garretts, um, who we've already met on the podcast. Um, and I really think, um, think that she's a, the kind of teacher that challenges me in lots and lots of ways, both in and out of the classroom. Um, she is a former public school teacher. So she brings, um, I think she brings some experiences there into, um, into our classrooms, I think are really helpful. Uh, and she has a really unique area of, of academic interest in that she's a scholar uh, of Islam, um, which is really <laughs> unique in, uh, in a Christian college setting like Bethel. So, um, she's an immensely fun person to talk to. So I hope you enjoy the podcast. All right. My guest is, uh, Amy Poppinga. Uh, from the history department history here at Bethel. Department, That's yes. right. And I guess the, the the first thing to just bring up is is we've known each other for a very long time, yes. right? Kind yep. of, right? Kind of. I feel like we have created collective memories that I'm not entirely sure we actually ever spoke to each other yes. when we were students. But I feel like we have made enough um, we have enough shared memories that you are that we've inserted each other. Right. We were in the room, the yes. same room for lots of things, even if we didn't ever have a conversation. Yes. Yeah. Th- okay. So what we're talking about is we were both Bethel history majors mm-hmm. in the late nineties. In the same senior sem class of '99 at Bethel, I'm trying. Did you think we ever had a conversation? Were we ever like in a small discussion group in class? You would think that we kind of had to be, although because we both kind of remember where the other person sat, and I always thought of you as across the room. Yeah. Chances are we probably did not. Yeah. Because I feel like you were always you were always on the side of the room, and I always prefer to sit normally like. For, not first row in the door, but normally second row over either in the first or second seat. And you were kind of always... I was always far least, from the yeah, door. Yeah, you were yeah. in the least safe place. That's right. That's right. I like to live 
live on the edge when I'm in a history class. Especially in AC classrooms, you definitely are the furthest from an exit. That's so, right. Yeah. That's right. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I want to make sure no one gets left behind. Oh, that's so kind of you. You know, that's kind of how I look at Let's it. Let's let so. that not be the only, like, Tim LaHaye, Jerry Jenkins reference <laughs> that's right. that comes up here. <laughs> oh. yeah. So, um... Or DC Talk. I guess it depends on which way you want. Wow. To go. See, see, yeah. I don't, I don't have your same, you your same that's references. Right. Although mm-hmm. we did both live in the 1980s. Yeah. So no, unlike some true. of our colleagues who lived in the 1980s yeah. but didn't live in the. I 1980s. always feel like though that's true when the when the 90s pop um, like pop culture Christian pop culture though questions come up that's when your um your inner Catholic gets revealed. That's right. My face goes a little blank and yeah. I just just don't know what you're um, what you're talking about. Well, um, one of the things that I always do I make it sounds like I've done this many times. But I always just write down a couple words about the person that I think oh. can sort of serve as, as launching off points um, in terms of how I think about um, you as a person, you as a teacher, as a uh, – you're looking at my notes. Well, I'm so excited my about it. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, mm-hmm. the, 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 the first one's kind of obvious, which is Islam. Okay. Right? Because yep. that's mm-hmm. that's your area of, of study, area of expertise. Yep. Um, so, I'd like to thank you off the bat for saying Islam, which is the religion, and not, say, just starting with Muslim. Oh, that's right. <laughs> I would need to do some clearing up That's a right. Bit. That doesn't describe you Doesn't describe you as well. Um, so I definitely want to talk – I mean, that, that's a story that yeah. I, I've heard and I know, but it's, I think it's a story worth sharing because it's sort of interesting to say i think if you know if we're sort of profiling people you don't look like if somebody was looking at you thinking what is she a scholar right. of like islam isn't the it's thing not which would the first thing that comes up right, right. Which or would, the which second would, or the third that's I'd right like to point that's out. right <laughs> um and the, the other thing and i'll start with the first two is uh is new mexico which okay. is some of my favorite stories amy and i um were part of the cwc podcast mm-hmm. for many years and our my favorite episode every semester was whenever we had a topic we didn't particularly want to talk too much about we would just give over the content segment to Amy telling stories about growing up in New Mexico. Yes, and it and I love that. Um, even even though I mean, I think I've shared a lot of the growing up stories. What I love about New Mexico is it just keeps giving back. That's right. <laughs> I mean, I feel like it just we we have not run out of things to talk about. Right, and I have, and because of it, I have this sort of warped view of New Mexico. Mm-hmm. We're like. Breaking Bad actually makes New Mexico look good compared yes. to what I think it is. Yes. With you, like, it is this sort of hellscape of, like, right. drugs and, and violence. and yep. Yeah. But 362 days of sunshine a year. And apparently, so. like, you, you go out for breakfast as part of yes. it, right? Like, breakfast and is a big And big Cokes. Yeah. Like, so there, there, there's yep. definitely a silver lining to the yep. cloud that is The only problem with having a big Coke is it makes it harder to hold on to your purse in a parking lot. So you would become a more... Oh, you're a better you're target. You're a better target. Yeah. Oh, exactly. do you think they're in cahoots, the, uh, the, oh, the quite, criminals in the restaurants? Quite possible. Well, I think there's probably a lot of... Um, a lot of small armed robberies in the Circle K parking lot and the Seven Eleven parking lot because they know you're going to be you're going to be otherwise occupied a little bit. Sure, so. sure. So, how much of your life did you live in New Mexico? So, I lived in New Mexico until I was fourteen, and then um, my dad and stepmom still live in New Mexico. So, I'm thirty six. So, I mean, I've been away from New Mexico longer than I've lived there, but I think that um, I think you always feel like you're sort of from. Where you, I mean, you know, I mean, I, I still feel like that's where I'm from. And mm-hmm. I think that there's certain cultural characteristics that were so formative that I still will sometimes feel like when I um, am observing something in Minnesota or feel out of place, it's like I'll remember, well, because that's not the way I grew up doing it or that isn't even what sort of seems normal to me. Sure. So, sure. Yeah. So, and, so do you consider yourself Minnesotan or not? Um. 
I, maybe I'm New Mexotan. Okay. I don't know, like how we can combine those because I mean, I do. I mean, you know, when I, if I'm traveling now elsewhere and somebody, you know, I, I lived overseas and when I did that and people say, where are you from? Minnesota is where I'm from. And I think, you know, now that I've, I've raised, I'm raising kids here, it's sort of like this is home now, but it's sort of one of those. I mean, um, my dad always almost ends every conversation with don't forget your roots, <laughs> which means <laughs> don't forget that you're from New Mexico. Right. So, and, and, and for the record, that's not like on the other side of prison glass. When that's he right. Says that. So, so what was, yeah. I mean, that, that, that's a, that's gotta be like the, in some ways the worst time to move, I would think. Is 14, yeah. Is that, oh, is that yeah. going, going into to ninth grade? Yes. Yeah. Yes. So no. what was that like? That was traumatic. Um, New Mexico is actually, uh, this sounds awful because it sounds like such a negative word, like no one has homes, but it's very transient place. So moving in and out was actually fairly common. Um, but when I moved to Minnesota, um, one, I, I mean, I liked where I, I, I liked my friendships and I, um, had a really positive overall school experience. So moving in ninth grade, I was not excited about it all. Um, also moving to Minnesota, I was, I started going to a school, um, where basically there was maybe one new person a year. And actually in my grade, I was the first new person in two years and everyone, at least it seemed that way, had known each other since elementary school, maybe even earlier. And also I think because of the farming culture, you know, a lot of people have their grandparents, their great grandparents um, here and they're, they're really their, um, their friendship network is really family, lots of big families. And I mean, I grew up in a place where there was one family that had four kids. Now my family had four kids because we were a blended family, but Mm -hmm. the other family in our school that had four kids, it was like, everybody just always said, well, the Gregory's were hippies. And it was like, well, yeah, I mean, you know, those Gregory's. So, I mean, having, so then moving to a place where everyone was so, um, settled and, and also it seemed like the thought of having to leave Minnesota I mean, was something people simply could not face. I remember, I, I very shortly remember after being here that um, a family we met had a, a son who was applying to medical school and he was going to have to go to the UW Madison and the family was like <laughs> just in mourning over it. We didn't understand that. So it's a hard, I think it's a hard place to break in. Sure. Um, so I think, so like I said, in some ways I still feel um, in, in certain respects more New Mexico because I feel like I'm a little bit more open to friendships and and things and i'm not quite so i don't have this family history here Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. well that's Mm -hmm. a i mean it's it's an interesting age in terms of your transitioning into a school in a different way at least for me the the transition from sixth to seventh grade but then from eighth grade to freshman year was a big yes big transition and then you're also going through all just all kinds of identity stuff at that time what does it mean then to also just uproot at that? I mean, is that actually, yeah. are there ways in which that was opportune as well? Or? Um, I certainly would not have been able to see any, to see anything opportune about it at the time. Um, my brother though was interesting because my brother who was, um, going into his sophomore year of high school after already having been through a year of high school, he actually was really excited for a reinvention, okay. you know? And so, I mean, I think, especially cause he just gone through the experience of starting high school the year before. So now being new sophomore year, it was like, he was just ready to rock it. And, you know, he kind of created who he wanted to be and it totally worked for him. And I mean, I had a much harder time with it and it was the first time ever that I had, and maybe this isn't that unusual when you're 14, but it was the first time ever I really became aware of like, regional culture and that you have cult you that you have cultural characteristics Mm -hmm. you know i mean i guess my my family for the most part is irish so i knew about kind of these ethnic characteristics that we might have but in terms of actually like seeing that um there are really specific different regional differences in the united states um that was 
pretty interesting to me and realizing that like I was different, you know, I never would have thought of myself as like that I would have certain things about me that were going to make me different, but it was was quite evident very quickly. So. Sure. So, so when you think about yourself as a, let's, let's, let's think about sort of pre move. So the New Mexico Amy, like what, what were you like? Very street smart. That's right. (laughs) So, so what, what were you, what were you like as a student? What were you like? If we were to think about you, I mean, you're, your son right now is six, Cole? Seven. Or, He's seven, or, yep. Okay. Mm-hmm. Is seven and Luke is five. five? Yep. Okay. So if you think about yourself at yeah. seven, eight, nine, like in the sort of sweet spot of living yeah. in New Mexico, going into school, I mean, what was that What was that version of you like? Yeah, I always loved school. I think school's always been a place where I've found a lot of security. Um, so I really like the school environment. Like I really, I really enjoyed um, being a part of a class, having a class identity. I, I've always been prone to belonging. I've never been a person who, um, I'm not, I I don't, I don't like to branch out, make my own way, be independent. I wouldn't describe myself as ever, um, sort of, you know, I like to have moments of being alone, but at the same time, I've never wanted to kind of, um, I've never felt an urgency to break away. Like I don't get sick of routine. Um, and so I loved school because I always liked the security that came from being in, Mrs. Magruder's first grade class from, you know, being in Mrs. Pyle's fifth grade class. Like, I really liked that sense of belonging. I loved having a desk to put things in. I mean, I still sometimes feel like, oh, I kind of wish that I just, even here at work, had one of those classroom desks with the lift up top, you know, and like your name on the front of it. So um, I loved school. Um, I, uh, New Mexico is different in that Um, mostly your school is comprised of like portable buildings. And so like your classroom is in, you know, I mean, kind of like here at Bethel, we have these RC classrooms. Um, it was like that. And so then when you were outside of the classroom and you ate lunch outside, you did a lot of stuff outside. Um, so you, so school is also kind of like in a way, um, I don't know. It was like this, it it was almost like its own world because Uh it's sort of like, you aren't just, you aren't supervised all the time because you're not like sitting in a cafeteria and you're not um, just sitting like in the library. It's like you, you have all this sort of space to spread out surrounded by chain link fence. I'd like to add, (laughs) but I mean, but in a weird way, because like you could really use nature at recess to like create stories and invent these, like invent places. And so, um, we just had a lot of freedom to roam and Mm -hmm. I, I loved that. Um, and so, yeah, I loved elementary school and I loved, um, I just always liked projects. I, I mean, I don't think I'm the most creative person in the world, but I really enjoyed, I mean, I loved when we had to do state projects and make things out of, you know, make the state flag out of, out of native grains, you know, like I, I really enjoyed. Wow. Saying that, that makes you, that, that means you're actually a Minnesotan. If you seed That's art true. is That's the kind true. of thing you like yeah, to do. We are the true. epicenter of seed art. Indeed. Yes. Do you think, do you think schools, uh, the sort of architecturally schools like that, when I taught in Mobile for a year oh, and right, we were yeah. in. It wasn't exactly that, but we were in multiple buildings, and there was this sort of passing that happened between, you know, one, you, you have class in one building, and then you'd have to actually, you know, cross the street and go over to the other building, and like you said, lunch was outside, and there just was more this sense that you weren't all your whole your whole school day wasn't within yeah. this one structure. Do you think that changes education at all, too, like or the the educational experience or? or I think that it does. You're just not as confined, I think, you know, and it's sort of like you have to navigate friendships very differently. Like I think of how for my kids at school, like they kind of get, um, 
they get rotated through recess and mm-hmm. you're on a playground and it's very confined and therefore they can only have so many kids out there at a time. And in New Mexico, because you just had this much bigger campus, it's like, well, the entire elementary school had recess at one time, which meant you had to navigate hierarchy and you had to, um, you know, you had sure. to, you had to figure out how to protect yourself or to invade enemy territory or whatever. And so, and so I think that it does impact education that I actually do think that, um, it really fostered creativity in a way, mm-hmm. because we would develop certain games and things that we would do outside. And then you inevitably kind of bring those inside into what you're, you know, I mean, I, sure. I feel like there was sort of more fluidity between things we might be doing in class. Like, so say, for example, you know, you read a certain book in class and then recess becomes about recreating it and mm-hmm. you have the space and kind of the materials to recreate it. Sure. Whereas I think sometimes having this more like confined playground and piece of pavement right. doesn't allow you to do that the same way that, that I could. Okay, so with that thought in mind, and I realize elementary school is very different than a college. Like Bethel yeah. is much like a Minnesota school, yeah. where one big building, yeah. and maybe you you leave to go to your car, or if you're a student, you leave to go to your dorm. But other, I mean, we were both Bethel students. Otherwise, once you got into the main buildings, like you were good. You were, and, right. and sometimes for eighteen, twenty hours, mm-hmm. you would just be. You wouldn't even know what building you were in. Yeah, I mean, it's weird to give people a tour. Be like, oh, now we're actually three buildings over from where we yep. started, but it doesn't feel like it. Do you think that has any? Well, obviously, it has some kind of. But what kind of impact do you think that has on, even on like a, a college education or college experience? I think that it, what's interesting to me, and you and I have talked about this before, but in a weird way, and maybe you don't want me to lump you into this category. Um, one of the things I study in history, and one of the courses I teach, history and the human environment, is how humans have become increasingly disconnected from nature, and that Americans, in particular, are very fearful of nature. And so, mm-hmm. we like to control it. We like it to look the way that we want it to, and we feel we feel a lack of security when we feel like nature is dominating us, as opposed to the opposite. This is so silly to pin on Bethel, but I think that you're onto something and that I would say that this campus in some strange ways like totally plays into that fear of nature because we're in Minnesota. We live in a very protected environment here. I mean, you know, we come in, we store our jackets at the beginning of the day. We don't think a thing um, about it till the end of the day. And I even avoid if I've been put in an outdoor classroom, I, you know, I go and have it changed because I am so used to that. So I think we're we're, we are definitely confined more a little yeah. bit. And I think that that can contribute to feeling cooped up. And sure. so when students talk about, you know, oh, the Bethel bubble, but they talk about the Bethel bubble as kind of this cultural phenomenon that they're, you know, but but actually in a way, if you think about it. We physically we, built We physically it. built right. a bubble right. where well, you I, don't want, you aren't forced to. And therefore, sometimes when you're not forced to, then, you know, you don't want to. Yeah. And so I even don't. find myself when the weather, once the weather's nice, I'm just so used to avoiding going outside yes, yeah. that like I'll go the whole day and I'll say to like a student will come in and they'll make a comment about how nice it is outside. And I think to myself, Oh really? Like I haven't, I haven't been out there. Yeah. I, it didn't occur to me that it was anything that out outside. there still exists actually, yeah, yeah. you know? Um, yeah. And if you think about it, we don't really have spaces to, um, eat outside, you know, we, we can't, there's a couple, I right. guess. Um, but it's funny because even though I know that there are some tables outside, um, I've never, and I like being outside, but I've never eaten outside. I don't think that I can recall. And so in a funny way, <laughs> I feel like there's this boundary that's been created that I almost feel like I used to when I taught high school, what, when I, A, was in high school in Minnesota and B, taught high school in Minnesota where you weren't allowed to go outside. Like every so often you would rogue decide to try to take your class out. It was a really nice day. So you'd go to try to conduct class on the bleachers by the tennis courts and you'd get in trouble. Right. You'd get found out pretty quickly. So in a funny way, I almost have to remind myself, 
I am an adult and I could go sit outside and, you know, grade papers or do, like outside right. to me seems right. off limits. <laughs> well, I feel like that. I mean, I, mean, I live steps away from yeah. campus and every once in a while I'll have to run home for something like a couple weeks ago. I forgot my glasses at home. And so I w- walked home to get them. And as I was walking home, I felt like I got to do this quick because I felt like I was playing hooky or yes. something. Yeah, I mean, there is that sense of no. like inside, even if I'm not working inside, at least I'm inside. Well, and that's. Yeah, I was thinking about a day, not, um, I think it was either it was in fall semester, or it was last year, where um, I had suggested that we um, and, and a few of our other friends go grab lunch off campus. And that's it was funny because oh, I, yeah. I think we all reacted like, we can't do that, not realizing that, you know, okay, if you taught on Hamlin's campus, you probably go out to lunch every day somewhere right, that's right, technically right. but but i mean even um i was actually even going to suggest it try to figure it out for tomorrow because we happen to have a little bit more free time tomorrow and i and and i instantly thought oh no 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 i don't that's too risky right too crazy right. <laughs> yeah. what if somebody saw that right. yes, this group of faculty left Leaving campus? we didn't sign out day. or something yeah 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 so so when you were i mean th- this is sort of going back mm-hmm. to thinking about um about you especially when you were young you talked about liking school were you a reader as a kid Yes yeah okay. I would say that um reading was the main um it's always been my main activity um I've always loved reading um I mean, to the point where reading became something my parents would reward or punish me with, meaning meaning that if I had gotten in trouble, books were taken away because um, because it was what I really valued and enjoyed, which sounds horrible now, but that's very 1980s parenting, I suppose. Um, but yes, I have always loved reading and probably to the, um, I mean, the main thing I got in trouble for growing up was being in the bathroom at night with the light on reading when I was supposed to be sleeping. Like that was my main that's form of rebellion funny. is my mom would be like, knock it off. We know what you're I'm- doing in there. Give me your book. And then she would take my book till morning. (laughs) Sure. I'm so envious of that. Like as a kid, Mm. I wasn't. And I'm still not. Like I I went through, like I can make myself a reader and I've read a lot. Yeah. But it's not the, it's not my natural, it's not my natural state. Like it's, it's usually always effort. It's sometimes really enjoyable. Yeah. But, but I, I know people who, for whom it's, it's sort of this thing that they're drawn to. And I think that I just, that's something I've always been envious of, of people who, and especially as a, as a, when I was a kid, I was just not that at all. So, yeah. so I, there have been pockets in my life where I've done catch up reading, you know, probably in early junior high, I caught up. Um, definitely my th- summer after my freshman year of college, I read voraciously because I talked, I remember talking to people that first year and just feeling embarrassed. Like I haven't read anything. Hmm. And here's all these people who I respect and who I like, who I want to be like, and not just professors. I'm talking about students that I was yeah. around and realizing, like, I've got to sort of up my game in terms of this. So I went back, and I basically that summer read a lot of the stuff that you should have read in high school and just thought, I need, wow. to, I need to have this stuff. Yeah. Um, and I loved it. I mean, like, I, I really enjoy it, but the actual process of doing it is really – is really hmm. difficult. For me. I, I mean, I still, I still, I fall asleep when I read almost instantly. Hmm. So yeah, no, I've always um, reading. I mean, it does not. I mean, you're probably more well read than I am, even though I read a lot more. But um, I've always, I would say, one of the most difficult things for me um, during the academic year is to still carve out time for pleasure reading. And mm-hmm. the first few years, I actually didn't. I thought there's too much that I have to read, and therefore I can't. Um, you know, I can't also be reading what I what I would like to read for just kind of my own you know, um, pleasure reading. And I gave that up this year. I've done that. And I'm just a much happier person for the fact that I don't feel like it's on hold that I get to, I mean, I read every night 
what I feel like reading uh-huh. as opposed to necessarily what I kind of need to be reading or have to be reading. Isn't that funny? Like you make that little switch of changing yeah. the activities of the same. Yes. But because yeah. of, because what you're taking in is different, like mm-hmm. it can be something that's work and tiring to something that's energizing and mm-hmm. fun and you're doing the same thing. Yes. You know, it's the, the activity is your eyes moving across the page. Yep. So, mm-hmm. so, so what, what were things that captured your imagination as a kid? Um, I was always intrigued by other time periods. Um, I always like would think of what it would have been like to, um, be a, I mean, this is before I really knew about like gender inequity, but I mean, I always sort of thought about like, what would it be like to be a girl in colonial times during Renaissance times, um, during, I mean, um, during the late 19th century in the United States, like I love to put myself, Mm -hmm. um, in the, you know, kind of historical context of what I was reading. And I've always loved, I mean, even when I was a kid, I loved um, historical, I mean, maybe not historical fiction, but certainly like books that were very descriptive about what life was like sure. in a different time period. Sure. Those, that was always kind of my favorite thing. So so the, the seeds of being a historian yeah. were there from, where yeah. does that come from? Um, I think I've always been very nostalgic. Like I've always been a nostalgic person, even when I was a child. And I think that part of it really does, as I've thought about it, as I've gotten older, my parents got divorced um, when I was seven and both were remarried by the time that I was 10. Um, and my parents were baby boomers and they, um, neither one of, neither my mom nor my dad, um, just had a lot of interest, say, in family heritage type stuff. But I happened to have a stepmom who, um, was raised on a cattle ranch in New Mexico, was really into family history um, and really into keeping family history and keeping artifacts and keep and, and like, that's just what she and I really bonded over. Um, I just thought it was fascinating. I loved it. Um, I think one of the spe- most special moments in my life was, I mean, even just two years ago that she and I as adults like that, um, you know, I tried to sort of show her how she had influenced what I teach to this day and her, you know, kind of saying to me that like, her heritage is my heritage. Like she kind Mm. of gifted that. I'll probably tear up now. Like she kind of gifted that to me, like said, you know, like this is your family story, you know, just because we aren't related by blood. And that was so meaningful to me. But as a kid, I just always, um, I think partially maybe just to cope with a lot of change. I don't like change. I'm not change oriented. It's one of the reasons I actually love teaching because I feel like there is enough that's, I mean, there's stuff changes all the time every year, but there's enough that's the same that it makes me feel very rooted. Um, and so I've never been a huge fan of change. Um, I really like things to be consistent. And so I think when I was a kid, um, studying what had come before, um, gave me a sense of security. Like I just really enjoyed, um, thinking about the past, imagining what life would have been like in the past. And I always felt a little bit more at home there. Hmm. Um, I don't, yeah, I just, um, I mean, I'm still that way. I'm still very, very nostalgic, very, and I know that, I mean, I think nostalgia can get a bad rap. We automatically assume that nostalgia is kind of, um, tied to naivety a little bit. Um, but I don't, I think, I, I think, you know, it's just, um, I've, I've, I've always sort of felt this weird connection that like someone's got to remember. And so, um, even when I was a kid, I loved, uh, kind of studying the past because I just sort of felt this like responsibility, Mm -hmm. um, for, for making it valuable. Yeah. And so that's always been fun to me. Sure. Sure. Yeah. So, so if I were to ask seven year old Amy or nine year old Amy, um, what did she want to be when she grew grew up? I mean, how, how, 
how quickly was was teaching part of that? Well, you know what's weird is teaching was not always a part of it. I really, I mean, this sounds silly. Maybe a lot of people say this. I wanted to be an actress. But the reasons are for the same reasons. Because sure. to me, it was like acting. You just wanted to be in period movies. Well, right. I did. You know, like acting gave me a way to make the past even more real. Sure. Right? Sure. So it was like actually, it was as close as you could come to living um, in time periods that I you know, thought that I would enjoy, you know, like I can get lost in television and film pretty easily. And I enjoy that. I mean, I Mm -hmm. love, um, period dramas and, um, and enjoy kind of the experience of giving yourself over to that a little bit. And so, um, and I did act growing up in middle school and high school, um, and stopped in college, but I mean, I still actually see that as a part of my future being back Mm -hmm. in community theater when I'm probably 65 or something. But, um, (laughs) but that's to me, what's most enjoyable is that you totally lose yourself in whatever world you happen to be in. Like I was in a play once where my care, it was 1941 and, um, I, I loved it because I could be totally immersed in 1941. So, so I think that I never, I did not, when I was young, think about teaching, but the roots of what I enjoy, um, were directed at acting, but I think I've achieved a lot of the same, um, fulfillment in a different way. Well, that's the stuff I find interesting is how, how much, you know, just even in a few of these conversations that that I've had, how much the seeds of what we become are really I think in our best moments now are, are, are rooted in those things that we yes. wanted to do then. I mean, the fact that you talked about acting and tying that in with history and thinking about, well, what is it, what is it to be a history teacher? Well, it's kind of that, right? Like, yeah. like you're there to be a vessel for the past to a little bit, to speak yeah. for the past and to embody the and, past and in some ways. It. Yeah. And, yeah. You know, it's funny. Um, I actually thought about this the other day just because I was, I was working with my son on something and I don't mean for it to sound smug, but I did kind of have this thought of the, like, you know, if, if the you of then could see the you now, what would their reaction be, you know, mm-hmm. to see you as this adult? And I thought, um, you know, a lot of times I think people think that the, the you, you know, your younger self would say, I cannot believe that's what you wound up doing. I don't recognize that at all. What happened to your dreams? And I actually kind of had this feeling like I think that my seven-year-old self would be like, I can't believe you get to do that. Like would be really like would think that. Um, and I've always felt this way. I feel so privileged to be in this job because I never thought I was capable of um, this. So it's like. I remember in an interview with Deb, my, my interview with Deb Harless, um, which I've cried twice in Deb Harless's office, so she makes me cry. But um, I remember, yes, in a good way. But I remember her saying to me, is this something you saw yourself doing? And I just remember like breaking down in tears saying, I don't think I ever would have thought I could do it. Mm -hmm. And so the fact that I'm doing it make, just makes it all the more um, valuable to me because I feel like it's, um, beyond what I ever could have conceived, like hoped hoped to be able to do. Well, I mean, it's it's interesting because if if I turn that same question on myself that that you said about like, would the, the me at eight years old, nine years old, what would they think of the me now? And, you know, I I would look at, at a lot of the stuff. I'm like, what did I want to do at that age? Well, I wanted to like make computer games and movies and cartoons like that's the stuff i wanted to do right and i look at well okay i do academic counseling and teaching but you know what else i do is i make movies and cartoons and computer games and yeah like like i actually i would be so excited about the toys i get to play with now um and that that gets to be part of my job and that that's the part of my job people notice and get excited about even if it's a small part like that's the part that seems you know so yeah i I mean i I join you in that in terms of I think I think he'd be excited. I mm-hmm. think I mm-hmm. hope so. 
And if not, I think I could convince him, no, yes. no, this is cool. This is really – this is this is you getting to sort of live that dream out. You know, I – yeah, I, I mean, I, I constantly live my life expecting to get a call from Deb Harless me or Jay Barn saying, you know what, we, we made a mistake. Like, we, we read the wrong form. It was a good run, but we, we, we can't do this. I think that all – that's so funny because I share that same sentiment that, like, there, like there will be some glitch that's discovered and they'll say, we you know, we thought it was somebody else or, you know, whatever. And I think that, um, you know, that then when you kind of think the things like, well, what if – where could things um, – where could my path have turned that I would have wound up somewhere different? Because then I, I actually – I value it so much. I get those when I, the next step in my think, like the progression of my thinking when I think about being young and, and being able to sort of see my future is that somehow I'd have to do it over and I'd mess it up. Right. And that I wouldn't be doing this. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, and it's funny because I then have to kind of, um, just take a breath and get thoughtful about it and actually realize that, um, I'm here because of lots of mistakes and lots of being told no and lots of rejection. And I find such freedom in that to mm-hmm. think that like I'm not here because I did everything perfectly and didn't I mean it's it's I actually have gotten here because of a lot of um a lot of times that that the answer was no mm-hmm. um and now in hindsight being grateful for that obviously um but that that actually allows me a lot of freedom I think with um with anything I want to move forward doing is I'm actually pretty used to rejection well so. well I mean if, if you don't mind talking about that, I yeah. think I think sort of pushing the forward for you a little forward a little bit like what are some of those some of, you know, I'm always interested in, in sort of paths not taken or maybe yep. paths where the, the roadblock was sort of laid in front of you and it's like, nope, that's not the direction or just something you chose not to do. Or, yeah. I mean, like, like what was, well, I guess we'll move into sort of Minnesota, Amy. Like what yeah. was, what was high school like? Um, and, and what were, what were directions not taken? What were, you know, wh- when did, when did teaching crystallize? Was that something that yeah. happened in high school? Was that? Yeah. Um, well, shortly after coming to Minnesota, um, I wanted to continue to pursue acting because it was something that I had been doing in New Mexico. So I tried out for a, um, essentially, I mean, a, a, a really, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for here? A pro- well, a program at the um, at the uh, Minnesota Children's Th- or the Children's Theater Company mm-hmm. in Minneapolis, and they had a program that if you were accepted into the program, I mean, you basically did half of your academic work in a school, and then you did the other half of the work in the program, and then you were at the theater every day, and I mean, you became an actor for the Minis- for the the Children's Theater, and so I was accepted into that program, and then kind of freaked out and decided not to do it. Really, um, what, what age was it- this? This was. Freshman year. Okay. So, um, so it was, um, I tried out in, um, at the end of September of my freshman year and things were not going well at my new school. I mean, I did not like it. I just was not fitting. I mean, I just was having kind of this miserable, um, start and the reason you were called back in November. And then if you were accepted into the program, you would start at the next semester. So you start it like in the, um, and so, I was accepted into the program, but it was funny because even by November, like everything had changed. Like I had made some friends, I fit in, life was a lot better. And I just realized that that was really consuming and that it was sort of like you have time for, I mean, you have to eat, sleep, breathe it. And I think, um, something that I've learned to value about myself is I, I really enjoy a lot of things, but there's really nothing I want to eat, sleep, breathe. I mean, there's nothing that I, um could do all. I mean, there's just nothing that, um, so drives me that I would want to do it all the time. Like my interests are too, like, I mean, I, I think I just, I mean, I just thought, 
that has to be everything. And mm-hmm. if, you know what, if, if those um, decisions had come back the first week of October, I'm sure I would have done it because huh. life was pretty miserable. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I've never regretted that, you know. Um, Did you in high school even regret? I mean, like, like, or, or was that just a, once it was in the rearview mirror? It was once the, it was in the rearview mirror, I didn't Because that sounds it. like a, like a. A pretty big opportunity, yep. you know, yep. like if like, because I mean, when you had said like, yeah, when I was a kid, I w- wanted to be an actor. So I was like, well, yeah, everybody, like I wanted to yep. be a fireman. But like, that's like for real. Yep. Yep. Um, no. Yeah. I mean, at the time I did, I probably regretted it more than I'm older. <laughs> like okay. In my moments of like, oh, I could have maybe done something really special. Um, but at the time I didn't because in high school, you're really self-centered. Life got better. I was happy. I made hmm. friends. There was a drama. You know, we had drama in the high school. I got involved in high school drama and that felt more balanced. Right. I could be in drama and play softball and work at Dayton's at the time. And, you know, do, like, you, do you generally live without regret? Yes. Okay. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so so and um, and I think that I mean that's yeah. a that's a superpower. It is. You know? I think that um that's something I've come to value instead of um something that I kind of I think for a long time perceived as being not very intelligent or making me kind of less or whatever is that uh I don't tend to live with regret. I think I was really raised by two sets of parents who were always who were really helpful in not making decisions for us, but showing us how to make, teaching us how to make decisions. Mm-hmm. And you make decisions and you move on. And there is very, and, and it was also really part of the theology I think that my parents equipped me with, which was God. Like when we try to have conversations around, well, what does God want me to do? Um, my parents would never let us say, well, you know, do you think God wants me to take the job at the United Artists Movie Theater or does he want to take me the job at Dorothy Ann Bakery? My parents were like, whichever job you take, God wants you to be kind to people at your job. God mm-hmm. wants you to show up. Mm-hmm. God wants you to have a good work ethic. Like that's what God's plan is for your life. And um, that was so freeing to me because it meant that no matter um, what I choose to do, it's more about how God uses me. You know, like, like the goals sure. are always going to be the same. And I think that I have been able to find that incredibly freeing because I have seen too many people. Um, and it doesn't mean I'm better because I put my whole host of my own issues, but like decision-making can be so crippling. And I, I think that's a bit cultural, um, mm-hmm. that because we have so much in our own control. Sure. So we put so much value on like making the right choice. And I think that, um, I, I try to think of of women in particular just because of my own interests, but women I've studied in other cultures who have no control mm-hmm. over almost anything that happens in their daily lives. But it doesn't mean that God's mission for them is any different just because they don't. I mean, is God's expectation of them nothing because they have no control? No. So I feel like I've um, I've that's something I started thinking about in high school, but I've sort of moved it into a place in the last few years of um, really feeling like in solidarity with women around the world, I can't think that God has any higher expectations for me. How insulting, you know, to other, uh-huh. other women in the world to think that, um, you know, I don't know, maybe sure. I'm not explaining that well, no, but, no, it's, that but makes, it's become very freeing instead of crippling. Sure. You know? Mm-hmm. So, so when you, when you decided to not do that, to yeah. not do the, mm-hmm. the children's theater company, was that, was that also sort of saying goodbye to that as a mm-hmm. career aspiration. Yeah. So you sort of saw that as like, if I was, if I'm going to do it, that's, I reengaged in it. My freshman year of college, I went to the U of M at Morris and I had, like I said, I did high school theater. And so when I went to the U of M at Morris, I actually started with a theater minor and I thought, okay, uh, I hadn't chosen a major yet. I just knew I wanted a theater hmm. minor in that first semester. I actually switched to having a history major and I dropped the theater minor. And that's because, um, and this is going to sound grossly stereotypical. 
um, my freshman year of college was because I had not done that program in high school was my first exposure to theater people. Hmm. Um, and in my own high school experience, because it was a relatively small school and kind of everybody has to be involved in anything, everything to make anything work. Um, there wasn't a culture around theater. And when I got to the UVM at Morris, there was very much kind of like, this is what it means to be a theater person. And it was sort of like you, I mean, and I think that's college in general, right? We have these sort of boxes you're supposed to fit in according to what major you choose or whatever. And, um, whoa, it just looked so different. I mean, just, I, I thought, well, everybody, every, I thought it would be the same that sort of everybody from a whole variety of backgrounds would kind of, we share this in common because we love it, but it very quickly, um, in that context, it was like, there is a group that does this. It's this type of person. And this is what you do in your spare time. And I just felt like I did not fit in with that at all. So I went into the, co- I, I worked in the costume department. That okay. was better. Huh. <laughs> so I kind of got my fix that way. Sure. Yeah. But sure. that's, but that semester is when I realized like, oh, this is not going to be the life that I'm probably going to lead. Okay. So, so, so. As you moved away from theater, both in high school and and then at Morris, um, and at Morris yeah. you gravitated towards history. I mean, what were what what was was the end of that then to teach, or was it just this is something I like and I'm going to see where that leads? Concurrently with um, being in this costume, working in this costume shop environment, I was taking a class on the Vietnam War, um, which was my first college level history class, and. Um, It was so fascinating. The teacher was so wonderful. Um, And it was really my first exposure to sort of mature historical fiction. Mm -hmm. I read a book called The Things They Carried by Tim O'Brien, who's a Minnesota author, um, about soldiers in the Vietnam War and the Mm -hmm. things they carried. And I was so, I, I mean, I just remember thinking, I really get to read this. And I mean, like, I mean, it was such an enjoyable experience. And I think that. It was, it was connecting with the same, this sounds silly, but it was connecting with the same parts of my soul in a very different way. Mm-hmm. And it was, it was fulfilling enough and enriching enough that it sort of felt like, oh, wow, this is just the beginning. And there's so much. I mean, I just remember looking in the catalog then at history courses and mm-hmm. just thinking, I mean, it was just, I don't know, just this menu of options that I thought, I can't believe, like this, I can't believe I get to study this stuff. I never thought in high school about history was something that was going to be bigger, broader, better um, when I got to college. And I just had stumbled into that class because it fulfilled a a credit. And so that, it was just, it was like, I mean, it's it's sort of like now when you um, watch it, uh, uh, an episode of a television series for the first time. And it's like, they've made five seasons of that show. And you think, I can't believe I have, you know, right. All like this in 80 front of episodes yeah. in front of me. And just that feeling of like, you have just, I don't know, found a, um, you know, a, a, a treasure, a treasure chest. Right. And that's how I felt. But, after, but you have class. to have the feeling of, I can't believe there's 80 episodes in front of me and I can't wait for all of them. And not the, I can't believe I need to slog through 80 episodes yes. to get this no, behind No, it wasn't me. like so, that. Yeah. And you know what? It's never been like that. And that, and that is, I think, what has amazed me about like my love of history is that I cannot think of one um, experience in college, in graduate school, um, that was a purely like history class where I thought, when are we going to be done with this? I right. mean, ever, right? you know, right. and, um, and that feels like you're just really a part of this special club of people that you get to, I mean, history for me became something that I could, especially once I came to Bethel and met other students of like mind, I just, 
was like, oh, I didn't realize that you could love something you could fully indulge yourself in without any kind of embarrassment over mm-hmm. it. Because like, I still, I mean, my love of musical theater was something I had become quite adept at hiding, <laughs> you know, I mean, sure. so, so, but, so mm-hmm. before we get you to being a Bethel student, yeah. I want to I make sure to not miss a couple things along sure. the, the path here. So. Uh, how did you end up at Morris? Like what was, what was that decision? Yeah. So my senior, um, I, I did the post-secondary enrollment option program. It was relatively, it was brand new at the time. I think it was the second year of, of PSEO. Yeah, it was, it was the second year. So this was, um, this was going into fall of 1995. And, um, I had looked at doing that program at Bethel because there were two other students from my school that had done it at Bethel. I applied to Bethel. I did not get in. Um, and so at first it was like, okay, well, there goes that idea. But then my brother had graduated. I missed my brother. Um, he'd gone off to Wheaton. Um, in many ways, I think I always sort of was more part of his circle of friend group and thing like that. I just sort of felt done. Um, I didn't have that many classes I needed to finish. Um, two of my friends who were older than me were going to Morris. And it came down to the fact that they were there early for volleyball. They were there, you know, three weeks early or whatever. And one of them called me because you did not email then or text and said, they have Paseo here. Like there's a girl on the volleyball team that's Paseo. And I said, oh, wow, you know, that's kind of interesting. And so I I talked to my parents about it. I mean, this is just such 90s decision making, right? I talked to my parents. They said, is that something you'd like to pursue? I said, yeah, I think that I would. Um, So we called the admissions office at Morris. I applied. I was accepted and I moved to Morris three at then the semester didn't start. The U was on quarters at the time. The semester didn't start till about the second week of September. Mm-hmm. And um, I was accepted and I moved to Morris sight unseen. I never, we didn't wow. visit it or anything. My parents wow. drove me up there, dropped me off. <laughs> so you spent uh, the, uh, the a full year, year yep. at Morris. Okay. Yep. So then what was, what was leaving Morris? Yeah. Then? Well, Morris, um, I have nothing, nothing but positive things to say um, about Morris. Um, I, though, in the course of that first year there, decided that I wanted to be a history teacher specifically. At that time, which I think is still the case in the U model, you have to do a five-year program instead of a four-year program. You have to do three years before you enter into your education classes, and then you enter into the education program and you stay on for a master's. Um, And at the time, at Morris, that would have meant that the last two years you did at the University of Minnesota. So you'd be there for three and then go to the University of Minnesota for the remaining ones. Um, I wasn't entirely sure that I wanted to do that. Um, I didn't know if I was going to like teaching. And so the thought of waiting three years sort of made me nervous. Like, what if I don't, you know, what if I do that and then I don't like it? And then where does that kind of leave me? Um, Morris, which does not have a lot of job opportunities. Um, you had to be work study eligible to have a job on campus. I was not. And, um, then there wasn't, I mean, like basically it was just sort of, I, you were in Morris. I was in Morris and there's not a lot, there's not a lot there. Um, I was coming home a lot. I Uh actually, I made really good friends there, but, um, I was a little, a teeny bit stir crazy. Home was in, um, in like the East side of St. Paul. Oh, okay. So, yep. Okay. So So I came home. For some reason I wasn't putting you in the cities. Yeah. You grew up in the cities. Yep. Yep. So, um, and I just, so then when I looked around at programs, um, there were lots of options for, um, going to, um, I applied at Wheaton. Mm-hmm. I had applied for Wheaton, um, during the midst of my first year at Morris. Um, I had not gotten in. Um, and so I, I think, I think in my heart of hearts, I wanted to go to Wheaton uh-huh. when I was in high school. And so it was sort of like the plan was I'll go somewhere for a year, do this Paseo thing. And then I'm going to go to Wheaton. 
Um, and then I did not get, <laughs> I did not get into Wheaton. So you can see the track record here, right? I don't get into places. And so I didn't get into Wheaton. So then it was like, well, now what do I do? And this was spring of sure. um, my first year. Sure. And so, um, at that time, back when we had really strict like admissions deadlines and things like that, I had already missed Bethel's, um, admissions like deadline. Sure. So I actually decided, well, I'm going to go to Northwestern for a quarter. They were on quarters. So it was actually easier to transfer to Northwestern College than Bethel because of the quarter system. I went and I, and the plan was I'll reapply to Wheaton. I'll get into Wheaton and I'll go to Wheaton. And so, um, I went to Northwestern for a quarter and hated it. It was awful. It was the most miserable th- three and a half months of my life. Why and that? so, um, I think a whole variety of reasons. Again, I just, I felt like I did not fit in there at all. Um, I did not understand what I'm, I don't want to hurt anyone's feelings, but like the humor of Northwestern did not make sense to me. Uh-huh. Um, I, I, coming from Morris, even though I've never been, I am not a rebellious person. I, 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 being in the environment of freedom that existed at Morris, even though it was not freedom that I necessarily was partaking of, sure. you at least had it, it. it, I had it and it affected my mindset about like what it means to conduct yourself as like a Christian person, even if the culture around you is not. Uh-huh. And so I think then going back into a culture that was solidly Christian, that had a very strong definition of what that meant and that there were specific rules around what that means. I mean, it's sort of like, I, I, I mean, I'm an, I'm an obedient person, but I mean, I got fined you know, for not going to chapel. So I had to pay, you know, and I, I just remember right. thinking like, what is wrong with, with this? And so, um, I applied to Wheaton again. I did not get in. Um, and so I applied to Bethel and I got into Bethel. And so then I came to Bethel, um, during J term of my, of the sophomore year. So, and then the rest is history. Well, not, right. but you know, right, but right, yeah, right. and was happy and was very happy and it was the right move. So, so your experience at Bethel was different than Northwestern, clearly. Oh, totally. So, because I, because I actually don't know a lot about Northwestern and I really yeah. talking about Northwestern circa right. 1996. Right, right, exactly. So, but like, but what was, what was different? Because I, I mean, I'm, the story you're just telling me feels like what you should say is I went to Northwestern for a semester, hated it. And then I had to go somewhere. I just had to go to like a public school. Like I couldn't. Right. Like, like how does that lead you? I felt, I felt like Bethel had a much more mature approach to what it means to live in the world, but not of it. I mean, I felt like we teach you how to live. Like we, like we, we accept that we live in the world and we need to figure out what that looks like. I saw a lot of hypocrisy at Bethel and I <laughs> kind of liked that in the sense that it was sort of like people are being real here, you okay. know? And, um, and there was a much broader diversity in terms of theological opinions. And, um, and I felt like when I came to Bethel right away from, I mean, I was here for J term, but what did you take that first? J-term? So J term, I took intro to the Bible okay. and it was with an adjunct who is a messianic Jew. So that was really interesting. That was really fascinating. I didn't make any friends in that class. And I was living in a townhouse with five other girls, all of whom were on J term trips. So I moved into their house and I never met them and they weren't there. So that was really How strange. Weird. So I lived with their stuff for a month. Wow. It was super weird. Huh. Um, and then, um, but then literally, I mean, I, I know it sounds silly, like you're, you're making this story up because you're reflecting upon it, but it really is the truth because I think I can equally talk about how miserable it was. I can talk about what a change it was to feel joyous. Um, like the first day of second semester after modern America, which was my first nine o'clock class and was my first class. I remember thinking like, like I thought I felt so settled in thinking this is just like when I was in that Vietnam war class, like I'm back. You know, like this is what I was looking, you know, I didn't even know that has, that was what I was looking for. Um, but it was sort of like, I had found it. 
Um, and I just loved it and it was enough. So it was like, even, I felt like even if like, I don't have a million friends, even if I don't have a group, which I never really ended up having Uh my, I found security in my coursework and security in my department. And it was, it was a good fit. And that's one of the first places where our story intersects. Because I was also in that class. Exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Sitting on the opposite side of the room, no doubt. Yes. But Mm -hmm. yeah. So that was with Diana Magnuson. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, so you and I have the, the, uh, the interesting thing of now, like, I mean, at the time, Diana, she was a professor here, and now yes. she's somebody who, like, is a friend of right, ours. Like, it's, right. it's a very strange, it is. you know, uh, coming back here was very strange in terms of that. Um, so, so what was what was your what was it like being at Bethel as a transfer? I mean, this is something that, that yeah. I know oh, I've yeah. talked with you a yeah. lot about, but but you're you're always something I go back to when I yeah. think about transfers. Yeah, I guess Bethel is built around. That first that week and a half. Yes. Well, the first week and a half yes. as a freshman. No, that is so true. Okay, so I shouldn't. Um, I'm going to continue to to um, lavishly um, put sugar on my academic experience because it was fantastic. But the social aspect of being a transfer was it was incredibly difficult because of this magical, mystical first week and a half freshman year. To this day when I um, meet people and you find out they went to Bethel and they don't know my, you know, they, they don't recognize me. They don't mind know my name. That's fine. You know? And then they'll always say, well, where'd you live freshman year? Like that's the identifier. That's right. how you place people. And so when you don't have that, it's like people instantly kind of not rudely dismiss you, but they right. realize, oh, well, that's why you don't have value to me because I don't know where to put you in. Yeah. And you know, secretly my... your degree is not really a Bethel degree. It's so place. true, isn't it? That is so true. So that was difficult. Bethel is a is a hard place to be a transfer. And I think at that time, even really, we didn't have much of a commuting student population. So there isn't even this added layer of like commuting students. I mean, at that time, as, as had been the case at Morris, Paseo was a full-time on-campus residential experience. So you didn't have, you know, you didn't have multiple students coming to Beth. Like, so you either, you know, I mean, you lived on campus um, and if you weren't here freshman year, you didn't really get rooted. And so I think it's interesting because, at that, I I would argue it was consistent at that time from other transfer friends that mm-hmm. I've made. When you were a transfer at that period of time, you might make, I mean, you make a friend here, a friend there. Um, you might find, um, you know, um, common, you know, you, I mean, I found my group through my academics, but you are not going to, I don't know, I, I think you're not going to get integrated into this broader group because people make their friends and they really stick with them. And Right. And if yeah. you do, it is because, I mean... There are personality types that can do that, but those yes. personality types yeah. are going to do that in every aspect of their life. Yeah. Like that's right, and that looks like a lot of hard work. Yeah, you know, yeah. I mean, yeah, I remember feeling like, I mean, I almost feel like it was a conscious decision that I don't have the energy to try to put out what I did when I was a freshman last year. You know, mm. like I don't have the energy to do that again. Sure. I don't know how to do that here. Sure. Yeah. So when you think about your, I mean, we can go back to the sugarcoating parts of yeah. like your your sort of positive. Yeah. Uh, positive academic student experiences here. I mean, especially in terms of things that things that happened in the classroom, professors that were in that had an impact on you, teachers, things like that. Like, what what are, what are the things you think about in terms of your time here as a student? Well, I think that I mean, from the get go, I felt invested in. Um, I felt that by the end of that semester, my I mean, I just remember because then fall of my junior year. Um, I, or no, I guess it would have been spring of my junior year, but I remember, so it was modern Europe was the class and there was a new transfer who was in the class. And I just remember 
reaching out to her. Um, and she's my best friend, um, now to this day, but I remember meeting her in that class and reaching out to her. And I remember consciously thinking on that day when I met her, Oh, like just hang in there because like, you don't even know how happy I am now. Um, and I was you at this time last year, you know? And so, um, I just always felt very invested in by the professors. GW Carlson was my advisor and he was just very, um, he invested in me. He, um, was always really thoughtful and kind towards me. Um, I became his TA and that was the best thing that ever happened to me. I mean, in terms of, again, just really meeting that need of, that I have, um, of feeling secure by being a part of something. It doesn't sure. matter how unimportant whatever I'm a part of is like the right. impact of the group makes no difference to me whatsoever. It's just feeling like other people and I share this experience that, that we value. And if sure. no one else thinks anything of it, I've never, I don't care, <laughs> yeah. you know? So, so that, that created that for me. So I found community within the department and even just being able to have a physical space to go to in his office, to be his TA, it just made me feel like I had a place. Like there was no place I preferred being, um, on Bethel's campus than at my desk in his office. Cause it was like, this is where I'm spo- like, I'm expected to be here. Um, I, I get to sort of own it. Um, I was given a lot of responsibility with it and a lot of trust. And, um, I just really valued that. Mm-hmm. Well, when you think about the, the, the teachers that you had he, I guess it could be at Bethel or, or any other, or anywhere else. Like what do you carry? What of them do you carry with you when you go into the classroom now? Well, I think that, um, when I think about my department and I think about everyone's gifts and strengths, I feel that I could rattle off like what I, what I think people are good at and what they, the particular type of students that they connect with. I think we have professors who are amazing at teaching upper division courses that, um, really take, um, our most, um, you know, I don't know, gifted driven history students and can just push them to a higher level. I think that I am the, um, history professor for the masses. Um, I like gen ed. I Mm -hmm. like, um, having, I, I really enjoy having students in my classroom and this stems from teaching high school. Uh The whole trick to high school is you have a group of people who are forced to be there who don't necessarily want to be there. And how do you make them feel like they now want to, how do you make them feel like it was worth their while? How do you actually work with them to make them feel surprised? Like they had no clue Mm -hmm. that they could enjoy this. And in similar respects, gen ed works the same way Mm -hmm. because you've got at least a third of the class who's just there out of convenience requirement. They need, you know, whatever it happens to be. And there's nothing I enjoy more than turning on those students. So, um, I think that that comes from teaching high school, um, I think that I was, I was an A minus B plus type of student and I worked hard. I mean, I didn't work as hard as I could. I mean, like, I will say that, um, I really, I always was sort of doing cost analysis, investing where I should have, and probably not putting in as much effort in other places. But GW Carlson, um, has the soft spot for A minus B plus students. And, um, so he never made me feel like less. He never made me feel like, because I wasn't one of the obviously brilliant that I didn't that I didn't have a place as a TA. I mean, I think that, um, GW really taught me how to see, um, each student differently based on their own personality and characteristics. Um, and I think that I try to carry Diana Magnuson into the classroom in terms of just a general love of content. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I absolutely 
love what I teach. I think it's fascinating. I never get tired of it. I mean, it kind of amazes me. The other day I was thinking I was showing this film clip and I added it up in my head and I thought, I've shown this film 14 times. And I thought, I still though, I watch it and am engaged in it every single time because I just think what I teach is really interesting. You know, I think, I think it's interesting, you know, thinking about those two people, like what you described about, um, kind of being the history professor for the masses, like not that you teach in a similar way, but like, that's what GW was too. I mean, I think like, like that's a real inheriting of that, that idea. And, and I mean, the thing, the way I would describe, um, Diana, very similar to what you said is that not only does she love, is it love of content, but it's also like, love of the discipline in the yes. field. Like she was the first time that I like, Oh, that's what a historian is. Right. Like, there's that a difference actually, between a history teacher and a historian. Exactly. It's not just relaying content in an engaging way, but Diana really teaches you the tools of the discipline. And I feel like that's been a goal of mine over the last few years is to just become better equipped with the tools so that I can demonstrate to others how to use them. Right. I mean, it's one thing to show somebody something you've built and help them appreciate the beauty about what you've built or talk about what mm-hmm. you've built, but to equip them to be able to build something themselves, mm-hmm. um, is really, really valuable. And I feel like I've, um, I kind of channel Diana when I do that. I mean, my ultimate goal in CWC is the same, you know, it's that you turn students on to something, help them think differently. And there's nothing I like more than when I'm teaching a class and, and, you know, I'll be looking at my roster and it's like, huh, I had this person in small group two years ago right? and you know, I'll say to them on the first day, so-and-so it's nice to see you. And, you know, and, and often if their response is, well, I always wanted to take a class from you again. Um, or I wasn't in your small group, but I saw you in CWC. And so when it came time to take a K, I want, you know, I mean like that to me is the greatest sure. compliment because sure. you've connected with how they learn. Um, you know, and, and often I feel that something students will say is that, you know, it's my enthusiasm that they admire. And so I feel like, wow, you know, if you've, if you've come in because it's my enthusiasm that's brought you here, yeah. um, that feels like a really high compliment. Yeah. Well, one of the things Chris Moore talked about when I, when I talked with him was he talked a lot of, about or, or sort of referenced like trying to become the teacher he wants to be. And, like, yeah. like, and so, so if you were to describe the teacher you want to be, and I mean, I, I think there's probably the seeds of that in the teacher you are, and maybe in some ways you are that teacher, you're, yeah. you're becoming that, like, like, What's that person like? What's that teacher like? Well, I think that, I mean, I, which I feel that you would affirm, feel like it so just comes down to who you are and not like the stuff that you have, but it's learning to better use who you are. Um, and I, um, I so value being able to really create, even though we use this word a lot around here, a sense of community within the classroom. Mm-hmm. I mean, I love when we are all kind of on board. We're all laughing at the same things. You know, we, we feel very much a part of a communal experience. I mean, we, I think all human beings like security. It's why at the end of the semester when you say, you know, like if you have to switch up the chairs or something, people are thrown off. They like sitting in the same place. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's mm-hmm. what they, that's what they do. And so, um, to me, you know, what I just want to continue to do is to exude the type of confidence that really builds a sense of community in the classroom. And this semester I've been in a classroom that it's funny is designed to make me a better teacher. And I think has just presented me with all kinds of challenges. And I actually thought about this today because I had a kind of a rough day in the classroom today. And I thought, what, what was it like? Why, why am I not feeling the sense of community? I mean, I know these jokes work. I've used them on, I've tested them many times. They're road tested. They, um, you know, and I thought it's because this particular setup in this classroom has made it harder for me to connect with these students. Um, they, maybe they're becoming better connected to each other. I'm not sure, but I'm not a part of it. 
I feel mm. very separated from it. Um, and that's weird. And I, you know, and, and I don't know, maybe some would say, well, that's good. That's what's supposed to happen. But it is affecting how I feel confident about connecting with the class. Sure. And so, you know, I think that that's really valuable. And, you know, I love when I walk by, um, particularly AC classrooms and I'll see like, I see Joey Horseman or I see, um, Gary Long who with his lanky frame really should not be sitting on one of those classroom desks backwards and on top of it. Um, but like their students are all sitting in this little circle around them and they just look so engaged. And I think, you know, there's no PowerPoint on, there's no fancy accoutrements. And, um, that to me just looks like, Ooh, like, I mean, I feel like right. I can feel the learning, you know? And, yeah. and um, What's well, those moments where you feel like, oh, if this was part of a movie about a college teacher, yes. like, I would buy it. Yeah. I'd be like, yeah, that's what a college yeah, classroom like, is supposed to be. And like, you have those every right, once in a while. These dead poet society moments, you know? And um, I, I always aspire to that. Like, how can I use the content in such a way to just make better connections with them and make them feel like we're really doing valuable work in here? Mm-hmm. Well, it's interesting. As, as I was sort of looking at other other words I wrote down and getting more at sort of my experience of you as a teacher, the first word was energy. Because in mm. terms of thinking about, especially in CWC, where we're teaching to 130 yeah. students, which at some colleges isn't a big class. At Bethel, it's a huge class. Um, that's one of the that's one of the first things that um, that I notice. Like when you get on the stage to start, like you sort of grab the energy of the whole room, and mm-hmm. it, and it really is kind of pulling everybody in to say, okay, we're gonna we're gonna compile all the energy here, and and that's gonna be part of what we do. And the other part is conversational. That like the and this is this is I think getting at some of that building that kind of personal um, relationship feel, even in a class where you're going to be lecturing. That you know most of that time that that there is there is a, a, a a conversational feel to what you're talking about, which I think draws students in. And I think it also makes whatever you're talking about accessible. Right. And those are the things, those are things that impress me when I think about, Oh, that, that, that's, that's the thing that, that's the thing that she's got that, that connects with those students. And I've been in the classroom. I can watch them. Hmm. You can feel them connecting. Hmm. You can feel when it's working. Um, and I, so, I mean, I think that's, I think that's, those are the things that I notice. Wow. Yeah. Well, that's really nice. Um, and I, appreciate that because I guess that is what I want to do. And I think that goes back to having taught high school, right? It's like, I got to win these people. And, um, it doesn't, I've, I've seen, you don't win them through being the coolest. Um, you know, you don't win them through being the nicest even. Um, but you win them through enthusiasm. I mean, you win them through being able to be vulnerable. And Mm -hmm. I think that enthusiasm takes a lot of vulnerability. I mean, it means saying, I'm going to be, I'm going to tell you something goofy about myself. I'm going to tell you about, you know, whatever happened to me this weekend in a way that relates to what we're doing. That isn't Mm -hmm. crossing a line, crossing a boundary. Um, and I think that that's what I enjoy. And it's been a challenge to my teaching in the last two years to really make sure, um, that as I story tell and as I try to create, um, you know, kind of conversations around common experiences that, I do that through things that transcend culture. And mm-hmm. I think that CWC has really been a testing ground for that um, because we've really had an increase in the number of students that we have from non-American backgrounds or from different mm-hmm. socioeconomic and different um, religious backgrounds or different rather Christian traditions. And so it's showed me that part of being a, an effective teacher in the 21st century is making sure that my storytelling um creates community for everyone and doesn't leave certain people being left feeling isolated mm-hmm. and like they're out of the, mm-hmm. out of the picture. And so I actually have intentionally tried to think about things that, well, what's going to transcend culture and there are certain things sure. that, that do, sure. you know? Sure. Mm-hmm. Well, and that's actually, I mean, the last word I put on there was personal. Oh, 
Um, you know, so and I think that's what you just described is, is one of the things that especially when I'm teaching a smaller class, uh, you know, if it's Fresh Start where I have eight or nine students or a CWC small group where I have 17, I think when I first started teaching, like, I was – my big concerns were about, like, being, like, technically proficient in covering what I needed to cover and, like, were my explanations good? Did I know what I needed to know? And I wasn't focused very much on is it me that's teaching it? And I feel like as I've gotten more comfortable and I think probably better at this is is when I've started to say, well, no, me interacting with this material along with them interacting with this material, that's where it's at. So I feel like especially in those smaller classes, I try to bring myself more to that. You know, so if it is sharing a little bit or even just in the course of talking about something, I think it helps students to add their own perspectives when yes. you're saying, like, see, it's I'm adding mine. That's okay. Right. Like, we are – or even pointing out, like, oh, I'm looking at this from a very 21st century perspective. You know, like, I think um, – and, and not only that, but from my 21st century yeah. perspective. Um, you know, I think I think that's that's been a really helpful thing. And I feel like a lot of the people I've taught CWC with in the last, the last six or seven years have really helped me to see that more. Yeah. Well, and I think especially for me, teaching about Islam um, has really, I've just become much more free about saying to the students, look, we don't know. I mean, there's so much that we don't know. And so, you know, on the one hand, okay, clearly I've got course objectives and there's things that I want them to know and we're going to gain a certain type of body of knowledge. But I have to be really honest with them about what I don't know. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, theologically, what I don't get, um, what we don't have answers for, what what struggles I have as a Christian, what, you know, because... Once they, once I kind of share that vulnerability, I mean, I actually really enjoy, like, normally it'll be the second or third class and someone will ask a question and my response is just like, I don't know, what do you think? You know, like, what, you know, and and we realize that, okay, this is a safe space to say, this isn't about black and white answers. Faith is not black and white. And, um, so I think that that's a really, um, I, I appreciate that I think I'm, getting better about being mature enough and confident enough in my teaching that I can be more honest about um, sure. what I don't know. Sure. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, it's in, I mean, this actually dovetails nicely because we haven't really talked about Islam at all. Okay. And yeah. I want to make sure to, to give a little bit of time because that's, that's obviously a big part of, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's what you teach. It's, yeah. it's, it's what you do your research in. Um, where does that come from as as a topic for you? Mm. Um, I mean, what 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 were the things that drew you to that? And then and then more importantly, what does it mean for you to be a scholar and a professor at a Christian university whose background is in Islam? I mean, what I, I'm always interested in what are the um, um, what are the waters you have to navigate? Yeah, you know, because yeah. I am I am I know some of them, and I imagine others are yep. complex. Yeah. So, well, you may have to remind me of the second part of the question because sure. by the time I answer the first, I'll probably um, not forget where or forget where we were. But um, I taught high school after Bethel, and um, we had um, at the high school where I was teaching at Irondale High School in New Brighton. Um, we had an increasing number of students who were Muslim. We didn't always know that. Um, they were Muslim. We knew our Somali students were Muslim, but we were so ill-equipped to know how to connect with those students. Um, I think that the attitude towards religion in 1999, 2000, even, I mean, well, spring of 2000 was, it's easiest if we don't talk about that, which is controversial, that which is litigious. <laughs> and so religion was just something we said, you just don't bring it in. I mean, mm-hmm. you just, we don't pray here. We don't do this or that here. You just leave it in your car. 
you know, along with whatever else at the beginning of the day, and you can get it again at the end of the day. And Muslim students really change that. So because part of their religious practice is very, I mean, it's an orthoprax religion, so it's we're, they have to do certain things at certain times. And so you can't just say, well, I'll do it later, you know, whatever. And so it really brought religion back into school. And mm-hmm. I think we didn't know what to do with it. And I found that we were ill-equipped. Um, history teachers were ill-equipped. The, the administration was ill-equipped. And so I went back to school. Um, I, my intention was to go back to school to get a master's d- degree in Islamic studies so that I could work with the school district as a cultural liaison to help um, schools just better have conversations about religion and better mm-hmm. reach out to families that are Muslim. But... Um, uh, I was in school. I'd been in school for three weeks when September 11th happened, and it just kind of changed everything. I mean, when I started the program in the middle of August, I mean, several people were like, what are you going to do with that? <laughs> I mean, it just seemed like a right. foolish, foolish right, decision. Right. And um, But then it, it, everything just totally changed. So the trajectory of what I ended up doing. Well, that's got to be weird because all of a sudden you were studying yeah. the thing that everybody right. felt like they right. needed to know and wanted to know a lot about. And I mean, yeah, and I just remember that, um, and I know I think I've shared this with you before, but I just remember that, um, like the my graduate school program, the um, one of the professors came to us and said, "Okay, we need a list of, you know, can you would you be willing to get a lot of calls from churches or getting a lot of calls from community groups?" And they just want someone to come in and talk for talk about this. And we all were like, are you kidding me? We've been in school for, you know, now four weeks. And I just remember that the response was, you know, four weeks more than anybody else. Right. And that was so true, you know. Um, and I did find that, that, that sort of then wherever I went, it was sort of, we just want to know something. Right. Um, which, which, which then in turn revealed to me, whoa, like how little, how little we knew and how Islam seemed so foreign and like a, an other thing. Um, my first exposure to Islam was my freshman year of college. There were two Nation of Islam um, students that were on my dorm floor and they knew a lot about Christianity. I did not know a lot about Islam. And, um, that was an embarrassing experience for me to feel like here I am, this student from a Christian school. I've Mm -hmm. been, you know, um, versed in my own religion since I was seven years old. And I had absolutely zero ability to transfer. Like, I I mean, it was like, I couldn't speak any other language. You know, I mean, I had no, no skills to, um, to transfer. Huh? Yeah. So then what does it mean? I'll get to the second yeah. part of the question. So what does it mean to be at a place like Bethel, a Christian institution, uh-huh. um, where your field of study is Islam, where yep. that's what your expertise is in? What are, what are some of the waters you find yourselves <laughs> navigating? I yeah, think? and, and it, there's been a fascinating – so I've been teaching a class on classes on Islam at Bethel since 2006. And there's been a fascinating just ebb and flow to student responses, um, broader kind of Bethel cultural responses um, that has been really interesting to be a part of and to watch. Um, I think that I have been so blessed to have a close relationship with Ruben Rivera in the history department because certain challenges that he has encountered in his teaching, um, he's really modeled for me the art of just having patience um, with knowing when to let things simmer, um, knowing when to push, knowing when it's not worth it to push. Um, I am so grateful that I get to teach Islam from an academic perspective. Mm-hmm. And, I, and, and so it's been important and necessary for me over the years to become more intentional um, in the first week of class was saying to students, here's what it means to be a historian of Islam. Mm-hmm. You know, here's what the field of acad- or here's what the field of Islamic studies is. Mm-hmm. Um, this is what the discipline encompasses. And here's how we as Islamic 
um, studies people go about doing, you know, the study of Islam. Mm -hmm. And so that has been really helpful because it allows me to say, here's what it is and here's what it isn't. Uh So I'm open to having almost any kind of conversation in the classroom, but it has to be backed by content. It's got to be supported by, um, you know, and, and that there's certain things that we have to do. And it's interesting because, um, I sometimes face opposition from within the Christian community. Why would I spend so much time studying a religion that isn't my own? Um, you know, not recognize, like, I always have to come back to this is an academic discipline. Right. You know, right. I mean, why does Chris Gare study Nazis? I don't know. Ask him. Right. You know, like, um, this is an academic discipline. But then it's funny because last week I had a, um, I had a Muslim guest speaker in my classroom. And so he wanted to see the textbooks that I used. So I was showing him the, the textbooks and, um, he kind of took a little bit of an issue with the the text that I used that was a, that that is a biography of of the prophet Muhammad and um the person who wrote the textbook wrote it in the 1960s they're a british historian um really really influential in the field of islamic studies um anglican scholar mm-hmm. anglican bishop and it was funny because it made me realize like i also kind of get questioned from you know because sure. because you know as someone who holds the who holds to the faith it's like, well, why are you using this person who's not even Muslim? And so I had to kind of explain to him, well, I'm working with Christian students. And what I really like about this text, first of all, it's really important to the discipline. That's part of it. And it has to do with the particular sources that the that the historian is using that makes it so valuable. Uh-huh. Also, you know, the person writing the text was an Anglican bishop who really wrote about Islam in a way that reflected how it was challenging his faith personally and how it was um, causing him to think differently about interfaith engagement and relationships. That's why I use that book because it's such a good model for my students of how another academic who also happens to be Christian, you know, I mean, so, so it's hard because sometimes I think that um, Muslim friends of mine, because they are Muslim feel like there's one way to do it. Um, And then there's within the Christian community, real concerns about anything that might, might even hint positive, you know, or that, um, instead of that, that maybe the goal shouldn't be that students come out feeling like walls have been broken down. Rather, they should be able, they should be better equipped to defend their battle lines. Mm. And that's not what academics is supposed to do. You know, that's not what the discipline does. And so I think that I have found that the secret to not getting too frustrated or not being offended or not, you know, I don't know, just feeling fatigued by it, which I do sometimes. Like, it can be really tiring. It can um, sure. just – but is to – the better that I – and this goes back to Diana Magnuson – the better I work with the tools of my discipline, mm-hmm. then the better able I am to construct my product in such a way that I think um, – it, it sort of alleviates some of the, the, the pressure and the critique. And, sure. And, mm. sure. Wow. Well, this has been really fun. I want to do the speed round really quick. Okay. Just some questions. This is questions that, okay. I, that I've asked everybody that oh, okay. I just find really interesting. Um, so first off, if you were to recommend a book. Okay. And it's not the book you think is the best book, okay. your favorite book, but this is a book where if, if, if a listener were to sit down and read this book, they would understand something about who you are. Something okay. that so a book yep. that explains you, and then the other is just another piece of media. It can be another book. It can be a movie, an album, anything, anything else that would be like this. Sort of gets at something about me. What would, yeah. you, what would your recommendations be? And I put them up on this on the website so okay. people can sort of see all these listed from okay. different episodes. So my favorite book that I read every other year is called The Middle Place by a um, by a woman named Kelly Corrigan. 
And um, it is just a great book about, um, it's sort of um, her uh, autobiographical journey of um, helping her family deal with her father's diagnosis of cancer. And then in the midst of it, finding out that she has cancer and she's a young mom. And it's, it's this whole idea of being kind of in a, the sandwich generation of being in your thirties where you don't even quite feel like an adult, but you've got kids, which means you are an adult. But at the same time, when you see a parent going through a particular struggle, you feel like a child. I mean, like sure, I just, sure. um, I love her writing. It's super just honest and funny and very vulnerable. And I've never read a book that I so felt like, I feel like you're right. I mean, I mean, I just right. so feel connected to her writing. Um, my, uh, I, this is hard because British television shows can be also disappointing in that they love to start out great. And then they'd like to give you no closure at their finish. They feel no obligation to give you any kind of closure whatsoever. But a, a television show that I've watched in the last year, there's four seasons of it. It's called from Lurker Eyes to Candleford. And I love it. And I think that it, it does, it does reflect who I am. It's this, um, it takes place at the end of the 19th century. It's about two towns. Well, really a town and a hamlet. Um, and it's about the postal service in the larger town of Candleford, kind of the, the um, kind of fancier, wealthier town with the hamlet of Larkrise. Um, and this postal service relationship that exists between the, these two places um, and the relationships of the people in those two communities. But it really deals a lot with issues of industrial revolution, like what happens with agriculture, like like a society is changing and a way hmm. of life is changing and how that um, takes away a little bit from the core of who people see themselves as artisan. I mean, like it just deals with so many different issues, um, friendship, loyalty, um, but also these really impressive historical changes that take place and their impact on like rural and urban communities. Huh. Yeah. I is, love is it, it Netflix available? Um, no, you can get it from the library. You can oh, okay. get it from the library. Um, Unless we BBC. demand that Netflix gets Unless it. Unless you maybe demand that Netflix gets it. But the hard part with it is that it was at the height of it. I mean, awesome ratings. And then um, the BBC canceled it ah. because that's what they do. So super frustrating. So know that it you won't get up. the resolution. Well, know right. that there's the resolution is super disappointing. But isn't that better than it going on and getting bad? Yeah, like heroes. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> So, um, then the, the, the last question, um, if you were to sort of design your ideal school or your ideal curriculum, what might that look like? Like what might, you know, and you can think about it as a school or as a curriculum, if that's easier to think about, like, what, what do you think it's important that, that you would want to sort of, uh, make part of a person's education? Well, I think that. The one of the things that I've seen that really works for student success, I mean, and so like, let's have this conversation, let's sound really impressive and say that the ultimate goal here is like student success, which it is, right? That's a good thing. Are you thing. a consultant? That's a good, that's what a is good, this? That's a good goal. No, but when I was a, when I was student teaching, I student taught in a middle school that had what was called the team concept. And so the, you had your office, you didn't, you had your classroom. But you had a shared office, and in that office, what you like, I was on seven A, and so it was half of the seventh grade mm -hmm. um, was assigned to seven A, and so we had the social studies teacher, the science teacher, um, you know, the English teacher, so the the phi ed teacher, and you were all you all shared an office, you all had the same students, so. You were so better. First of all, the camaraderie that existed. I mean, it's like a sitcom, like sure. the camaraderie that existed in this shared office. You weren't isolated. You could do a lot of curriculum overlap because you were in constant communication with what other people were doing with the exact same students. Mm -hmm. You also were so able to stay on top of... Like if somebody hadn't been there for a few days or if somebody had been acting up or acting or not taking their meds or, you know, like doing like, like whatever it was, you were so quick to be able to like 
isolate, recognize that there was an issue, and be able to really work to resolve it. And I think that the students who I've really seen struggle and then kind of come out on the other side, even at the college level, are those where it's like there's enough kind of shared, um, prof- like there's enough of the, the sort of shared community around them of um, I mean, authorities, maybe not the right word, but rather maybe just like um, adults, mm-hmm. you know, even that you can, again, make that student feel like they're known, um, make them aware that they need to, you know, th- like, I just love the better in connection we are with each other. And so then when we are able to kind of work on a student together, mm-hmm. um, I think it's just that's so enriching and it's so great. And, and, you know, and so, and also the friendships that exist amongst the faculty only benefit students. They don't, you know, I mean, I've seen that time and time again, that right. when we, when we can celebrate a, a student together because we have this friendship that already exists, like that's just so mm-hmm. it's like win-win. Yeah. It's interesting that, that everybody I've asked that question to their answer always comes down to something about getting smaller, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, um, which, which I think speaks to a direction where we often aren't going in terms of looking at education, whether it's I know. growing this institution, whether it's looking at online, which can be expansive in different kinds of ways, but you talk to people who are professional teachers and they say, no, no, what we need is something smaller. Yep. What we need is time spent together, yep. physical space spent together. I mean, I think that's that's really interesting and I, I hopeful, hopefully telling. I mean, I think that – I think it is too. Yeah. 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 No, I really – I'm a huge – supporter of that. I think there's models for how you even do that within a bigger structure. You Mm -hmm. know, that's what I saw where I had been teaching. Um, There's just um, the thing, the things that you can really do to make things more personal, I think always pay Mm -hmm. off. Mm -hmm. And making the student's world a little smaller too can be really helpful because they live in a world that's hyper-connected and global. And sometimes what they need is an experience of something around them that's, that doesn't shelter them close off, but closes them off a little bit to say, well, right. this this is the people you're with. Let's experience that global thing together right. as opposed well, to we're all these, you know, uh, autonomous beings in this globally connected thing. Well, and it increases your accountability and accountability is not a bad thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, I need accountability. So, you know, it's sort of that. Um, and I love accountability. And I mean, I feel like I have this with my friendships at work where you want to move students from a place of, well, I need to go to class because I'll get in trouble if I don't, to moving them to a place of, I know I have something to contribute and I'll be disappointing her or him if I'm not there, to then moving on to, you know, like, I want to be there because I want to demonstrate what I add to it. Right. You know? Right. Absolutely. So, well, this has been very fun. Well, thank you yeah, very yeah. much. I, I, want, I want to just close by saying something I said to Chris Moore at the end, and I included you at the end of Chris Moore's podcast okay. talking about both of this, which is um, he, Chris and you are, are two people that are really good friends of mine, people I've, I've known for, for quite a while. Um, and as I look at sort of the Bethel, the Bethel faculty and the sort of the future of Bethel that I'm excited about, like if there's two people that I'm buying stock in as professors, huh. it's you and Chris Moore. All the money I made off of investing my my stock money in Chris Garrett's and Sarah <laughs> yes. Shady, all those dividends are now – like I, I think – I just really feel like um, as I think of Bethel five years from now, ten years from now, like – it's it's the fingerprints of, of you and Chris and people like that that I think are, are that I'm really excited to sort of see kind of what that happens. I can see in CWC, I mean, increasingly sort of the role you're able to play. You know, I mean, last year was your first year full time here. Mm-hmm. You know, watching the role you're able to play, like it just excites me to see like, well, what is this going to continue to look like as you 
because uh, I think we all have this the, the this sort of slow progression of okay, at what point do I really own this where I can yeah. make it mine? Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. and we've been through generational shifts departmentally. We've been through generational shifts in CWC, mm-hmm. and I think those things are really fun. So I'm excited for what's coming. I mean, not to put any pressure on you, but I'm excited right. for what's coming, right? Like, I think that that's um, – you're, you're two people that I just I, – I can't wait to sort of watch oh. this play out. So, Well, that's super exciting, and I think that that is, for me, the real joy of work is being here with such talented friends and to feel like, you know, whatever should be – I remember you saying years ago – about an administrator, like that you'd follow them into battle, you know, and it's like, that's how I feel about you. And that's how I feel about, you know, our kind of core group of people, because it is, it's not just connecting on a personal level, but it's just, I think, doesn't mean we don't get tired, doesn't mean we don't get frustrated, but it's just at the end of the day that that commitment to saying like, we want to make this place better because we care about it ultimately. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not just, well, this is my employer, but it's because that we really value and, and care about it. Um, and so I am always excited to be a part of that. Right. Well, thank you very much. You are welcome. All and right. I'd like to say for the record, Diana Magnuson is who introduced me to Lark Rise to Candleford. I feel like I need to give the props. <laughs> think there. When we arrive, sons and daughters will make our homes on the water. We'll build our walls, aluminum will fill our mouths, the cinema.